Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Cape Town is Professor Linda Ronnie, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Commerce at the University of Cape Town. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Prof. Ronnie, to start with, as Dean of the Faculty of Commerce at UCT, can you tell us more about some of the departments that are housed within the faculty? Okay, we have five departments uh, within Commerce, and these are the School of Management Studies, the School of Economics, the College of Accounting, the Department of Finance and Tax, and the Department of Information Systems. And what are your milestones that you want to accomplish during your your tenure? Well, I think um, there are two key things for me. Uh, The first is really around um, curriculum reform. So we need to be sure that as a university on the continent, we are dealing with continentally appropriate information and uh, getting our graduates to be out there and be real productive members of society. So that would be my first um, intent, really. And then the second is, of course, around uh, becoming more uh, demographically representative. Um, Unfortunately, I think in South Africa, we are focused almost completely on the racial demography and not really thought about um, gender and uh, its importance. And so that's really my focus, I think. Curriculum reform, it seems to be a, a hot topic on the table for literally all of our universities in South Africa. That's going to be a massive assignment to accomplish. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, at the end of my five-year term, I have been lucky to have made a little dent in it because I think it's an ongoing conversation that we need to have. Um, for me, I think the first step is really around uh, relevance. So are we teaching things that are are relevant to our soon-to-be graduates? If we're producing graduates for the world of work, um, we need to have um, young people out there who are really on the top of their game, and so we have to be on the top of our game. Um, So that, I mean, has been a natural part of um, academia for as long as I can remember, which is, you know, returning to your syllabus and throwing out the things that are a little dated and including um, stuff that is a little more uh, relevant. So that that process is already in place. It is just being a little more tuned um, to what might be relevant both uh, for South Africa, um, the continent, and then also be mindful that um, our graduates may leave uh, the continent for other shores and they need to be able to um, make a contribution in those environments as well. Yep, so global citizens. Given the economic nature of the departments and schools under your watch, who have you, you have to produce graduates who are able to contribute to our economy, how are you a, managing to integrate the worlds of academia with industry? I think we're quite fortunate here, really. Um, you know, uh, commerce has essentially two, two major degrees, um, and we also have um, incredible links 
with industry because I won't say that um, they underwrite what we do, but in a sense they do. So, um, for example, um, SICA, who is the um, South African Institute of Chartered Accountants, are quite involved with the kind of accountant uh, or the accountancy professional that they'd like to see uh, produced. And so our curriculum is in line with uh, with what they're wanting. And the same applies um, to our actuarial bodies out there. Um, and then just on a more sort of granular level, we obviously have people coming in from industry to guest lecture in our classes. And I think that's, that's amazing because you're getting students who are kind of not quite decided about their career paths. I, I always say I think their parents are a lot more decided than they are. Um, but they're sort of struggling to know where they're going to fit in. And then people coming from industry to talk about all the possibilities um, that may be before them. I think that's a, a strong element of, of collaboration and, and that integration between the two so that people get a view of, of, what's, of what to expect and what those opportunities are. One thing which is standing out for me more and more is the strong representation of female leadership at the University of Cape Town. Your VC, Prof. Momocheti Pacheng, the three deputy VCs, Prof. Loretta Ferris, Prof. Sue Harrison, Prof. Liz Langer, and then the deans who are leading faculties like yourself, Professor Alison Lewis, and Professor Carolyn Williamson. So in your opinion, what I wanted to ask is, what has the university done right to improve the representation of women in leadership? Well, I think, um, you know, the university set out to find the most competent people um, to fulfill these roles, and they just happen to be women. How do you think that, that this can be replicated into other areas? Because, to be frank, female leadership, besides our, our public sectors, is actually quite poor. No, no, I'd, I'd, I'd agree there completely. I think I think the no, it starts with the notion that um, and the belief that there are competent women out there, um, and it's it's kind of deciding um, how to nurture them along the road uh, so that when leadership positions arise, they they can fulfil those. So it doesn't start at the top in a sense. It starts by having particular policies and practices that encourage women. And so the whole notion of kind of having women uh, in these leadership positions who act as role models is absolutely fantastic for the university. And I look at this as well as, you know, you, you spoke about the role modeling effect on how it nurtures and, and provides opportunities for younger women as the students to understand and realize that you've got this fantastic cohort of female leadership at the top, that being a leader is possible. You can be the head of an institution or you can be a head of an organization. Yeah, I think that's, that's particularly important. You know, it's, it's not something you read about. It's something you're actually seeing. Uh, you're seeing people... Um, act in well, what I'd, we both consider to be kind of traditional male roles uh, and be absolutely confident about themselves in those roles. And I think that sets a wonderful example for young women. I mean, I think that um, applies down the, down the chain as well. So um, 
commerce, commerce is certainly an example of this, but I would imagine it's pretty true across the university that um, we've got, well, we at Commerce here, we've got twice as many men uh, as women in the senior uh, um, professorial uh, band. And I think that's something that needs to change because then students are able to see it in the classroom as well. Plus, that also provides your pipeline for development. Absolutely. I mentioned earlier about the, the public sector having a, a much better picture in terms of, of female representation. But in corporate South Africa, the, the numbers are really quite poor. Um, we've got surveys from a number of different institutions, whether it's Grant Thornton, McKinsey, or Business Women's Association of South Africa. On the um, Business Women's Association of South Africa, their 2017 study showed that women only account for 29.5% of executive managers and only 4.7% of CEOs in JSE-listed companies. Now, bearing in mind this is 2017, so we've now had Maria Ramos exit ABSA, um, so that picture is possibly even, even poorer. Yes, yes, I, I, I'd imagine so. I think what organizations are doing, they're putting in the appropriate policies and so on, but there's, there's a little more to be done than just that. Um, and uh, you alluded, it, alluded to it earlier, which is that you must nurture women within the organization um, at all levels in order to create that pipeline. You've authored and co-authored several papers on women in business and leadership, and I'm going to mention a couple of them. More women in business is good for the bottom line. South African women leaders enables for success. And another one is exploring the labyrinth, challenges faced by South African women in senior leadership roles. Please, can you tell us about some of your learnings and findings? Okay, so the, the two really nice concepts that I think you'd like. The one is the think manager, think male paradigm, which is just kind of the whole notion that um, the kind of qualities you want from a manager are to be found in, in men. Uh, so that's 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 kind of the one um, the one aspect which is really I think pretty prevalent across um, across uh, organisations. And then um, there's another notion which is the notion of the sticky floor, uh, which explains that um, uh, organisational practices keep women in follower roles due to our communal traits. Do you know? So even before women contemplate leadership roles, they're already told in a number of subtle and perhaps not so subtle ways that their role is really uh, to be of support and to nurture others um, from the bottom up, so to say, rather than the other way around. I haven't heard the sticky floor expression before. But yeah, no, it's absolutely fascinating. And in your opinion, you know, given... It's all very well going and doing the studies, looking at the findings, but what can we do to fix the situation so that we can improve the outlook for women to rise to the top and not be held down by that sticky floor? Yeah, I think you see besides organizations kind of um, having this compliance uh, mindset, which is really we have these policies and we need to get X amount of people into the role, um, is to say what are the kind 
of barriers that women are facing. And one of the most incredible ways of finding out what those are is simply asking the women in your organization. So what are the barriers you're facing? Um, what kind of skills uh, do women uh, need? Um, and then working on something which I think is a more of a long-term uh, or, or rather not an overnight um, uh, solution, which is really kind of to try and dismantle those unconscious biases that, that we all have. Um, so what, on the one hand, they need to obviously monitor progress uh, in terms of, of targets and so on. And the other really is that um, women are becoming quite discerning now. So before we go off to organizations, we want to have a look at what is their reputation um, for um, supporting and embracing women, uh, you know, all the way to the top. And I think there are many organizations who are losing out because their reputation in the market is really poor in that regard. Um, so they might they might attract, but but they don't retain outstanding women. So that's that's uh, pretty key. Um, the other really is um, to understand what is what is real empowerment um, for women. What, what does that mean, you know? Um, and then try and kind of uh, address some of, some of those issues as well. But I'd, I'd really be um, kind of remiss if I didn't also say that uh, women shouldn't be waiting on organizations to help them out. There are things women themselves can do. Because if, you know, to get back to the notion of the sticky floor, um, if you if you are buying into the sticky floor and you say, well, you see, they don't really have any opportunities here for me and so on, and 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 you don't do anything about it, uh, then you are as um, oh, let's say you are um, you you also yeah you you are equally responsible for the position you find yourself in. Yeah, so we've got the dynamics of what happens in the organization with policy of trying to, to put that into effect. But then we also, as a woman, need to become more assertive as individuals and go for it. That's right. I think it's, it's our role to play in, in ensuring our own emancipation, you know. And, and then the other most fantastic thing we can do is there are other women. So, I mean, you know, find uh, support and networks um, across um, other organizations in one social circle and so on. And and finally, I think something which has really been marvelous, um, the new generation of employees, I mean, we're finding more and more young men want a balanced life. And, and they're likely to be quite supportive of initiatives that uh, benefit both groups in the workplace. So one can um, consider them allies and advocates of women's empowerment as well. I think that's a great perspective. It's actually one that I haven't heard on looking at the younger generation coming through and, and the balance equation. Absolutely. Financial independence obviously contributes to, to women's empowerment. Um, our unemployment statistics are, are depressing to, to say the least. They, depending on which way the, the figures are, are cut, they seem to be hovering on around the 27% mark. But the corporate space is not the only means for gainful em employment. Entrepreneurship is obviously another route to independence. 
So what types of programs has the Faculty of, of Commerce initiated to promote female entrepreneurship? Well, I, I have to say we haven't particularly focused on women um, entrepreneurs. There are more sorts of general things, like we have our postgraduate diploma in entrepreneurship, which is amazingly um, popular. And um, I suppose we we focus on women in the sense that when there are opportunities for them for students to go off and um, attend workshops and conferences, um, we are able to sponsor um, a small group of women. Um, for example, uh, last year, that went off to a symposium in Durban uh, to represent us there, which was, yeah, I think that was fabulous. But uh, I'd, I'd have to say that we didn't set out to do that. So I wouldn't um, uh, claim it as a victory there at all. Other, other um, uh, sections of the university, I would say, um, are at the Graduate School of Business, where they have uh, the solution space, which really kind of helps young entrepreneurs uh, across the board, and uh, the Raymond Ackerman Academy, uh, which is um, a wonderful six-month uh, program for young people who are wanting to become entrepreneurs. And that one's also pretty um, gender-friendly in terms of its um, intake. Yeah. Well, I have to say, we had the privilege of interviewing Wendy Ackerman on our show a few years ago. And one of the things that she spoke about when she went into the workplace, she said, you know, we, we hear about glass ceilings, but she said, when I was there, it was a glass cube in terms of the barriers that women confronted on, on literally almost every direction that you, that you, that you tried to um, move ahead into. Yeah, I'd agree there. I think that a, a lot has changed, but it really has changed so slowly. Because I think I saw a stat the other day that said, if we if we just attempted gender parity now, women would earn the same as men in about I think it was 102 years. <laughs> yes, those you know the, those surveys are, are quite frightening. That, and it really always concerns me that. It's something, these changes are going to happen to another generation. They're not going to happen for our generation, which I think they should. But whatever we're doing is, is working towards the future. One of the points that I, I wanted to ask you, and you alluded to it earlier in terms of our, our younger generation of men and women wanting more of a balance in life, is when it comes to unpaid labor, which is obviously essential to sustain households and economies from cooking, cleaning, looking after kids, uh, attending to the elderly, etc. And I read a stat from UN Women where they estimate that women carry out two and a half times more unpaid housework and care work than men, which has a double impact because it means that then they've got less time to participate in paid labor or they have to work, lo or to be able to work longer hours. And there needs to be a better dynamic of how to incorporate the paid and as well as unpaid labor. How do you think we can promote more of an equitable distribution of unpaid work between men and women? I think there's several suggestions there. I mean, um, one uh, for me would always be um, 
it's important to raise your children correctly. So they need to see that in the home in the first place. Um, you know, so who you choose as your partner is really quite quite important. Um, if I can talk about my own, I'd have to say um, that he's always been out there doing sort of more traditional things. He is the cook. Um, he does all sorts of other related tasks around the home. And so our children have never imagined that women do one thing and men do another. They're just tasks that occur and, you know, whoever's uh, available then does it. Someone has to do them. In, yeah, no, absolutely. So I think it's, it's there one must role model oneself. Um, this, this, the, the notion also of um, the kind of toys one buys for children. You know, it, it sort of sounds, it sounds so simple, but it really is p- um, part of the marketing, um, the marketing sphere that entrenches kind of particular roles because the, you know, the, the little play play stove um, is never bought uh, for a young boy. Um, and, uh, you know, all, all the associated things, the tea set, etc. So those just reinforce particular roles, serving roles, I'd have to say, um, among young young girls. So, yeah, one has to um, make, make one's change there, I think. Um, the other is around, I mean, just a sort of organizational-wide, is um, attending to parental leave. So this surge in kind of increasing paternity leave in organizations, for example, uh, here at UCT, I think that goes some way to realizing that there are two parties in a, in a, a child-rearing uh, capacity, and uh, both need to play their role. So I think that's another way that organizations can um, ensure more gender-friendly policies, you know. Um, that, that again, is, I think it's, 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 quite, it's quite a mountain to climb in a very patriarchal society like ours. Um, there's so many societal uh, pressures uh, on young women, and, I mean, we're, we're just talking about women so far. We're just talking about women as some kind of amorphous mass, and we know that's not true. There are different cultural practices, and um, the most confident and competent of women sometimes play the, play the other role over the weekend or in their um, private lives when they go on holiday. They take uh, more submissive roles to appease um, the broader family. Uh, so shifting those things is, is also going to take a little time, I think. You're absolutely right on on how some ladies manage those dynamics. We've had a number of of successful medical doctors on the show who have and lawyers who've spoken about exactly that. That during the week they're in their lab coats, they are at the top of their game, and at weekends they have to become subservient. They have to follow protocol with with culture. So they they're leading these double or, or triple lives. Um, and, and navigating that journey. Yes, and we wonder why women are tired. It's because <laughs> they are juggling <laughs> all these different persona. <laughs> and yes, I'm sure we've got a bit of a, what do we call it, almost a, a, a skit, bit of schizophrenia and um, multiple personality disorders. Yes, yes. Along with, interestingly, along with a lot of guilt, 
Um, you know, in, I'm, I'm thinking about my own studies now. Uh, and in my PhD, I was looking at, at gender as one variable uh, in in my study. And um, I asked women, so so how do you feel about you know doing uh, doing your studies on top of all your other roles? Um, and uh, th- they were they were quick with an answer about how how they were kind of being challenged at all times because they they felt they were letting down their children, they were letting down their husbands, and the men in the sample, um, really, they expressed no such uh, feelings. I mean, I asked several times, I kind of said, well, for example, don't you feel that you, you know, you haven't, no, 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 my wife's quite supportive, all is well at home. So quite interesting, that, that dynamic as well. Yes, perspectives. You are listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, the African Perspective, on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band, also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today, we're talking to Professor Linda Ronnie, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Commerce at the University of Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof. Ronnie Education is a vital tool to empower individuals and societies, and your passion for education is evident throughout your career, both as an educator as well as a learner. You hold a master's in education, training and development, MSc in applied psychology, and a PhD which examined the experiences of mature students in higher learning education institutions. Firstly, can you tell us what role did education play in your life and career development? Yes, I think I was um, I was someone who um, came came late to the party. Uh, that's probably the best way to put it. Okay, um, we had I grew up in a very particular time um, where uh, the career choices presented to us were uh, ones of um, nurses, uh, teachers, uh, etc. So all in these kind of service roles really. And that was that was due to not not only a gendered perspective but obviously a racial uh, perspective during um, the apartheid years. So I didn't really have any idea of, of being anyone. I think I think that's probably the the best way to put it. Um, my dad uh, was a high school teacher and um, so education was uh, a primary um, uh, kind of focus in our lives, and my mom was in um, social work. So we um, we got that kind of um, impetus as well, because she was seeing things in her work and said, you know, that, that well, they both believed very firmly that um, education was was the route away from our our scenario. Um, so my, I'd have to say to you that my, all my qualifications have been as a result of part-time study. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, I look at our um, young people here in commerce and I think they don't quite appreciate uh, the real joy of being a full-time student. Um, but yeah, that, that wasn't something that um, was uh, in my life at that point. Um, and so I can truly say that that learning and being, I suppose, good at at uh, 
a variety of my courses really, really assisted me in becoming a lot more confident, but also through seeing the different opportunities that would be available to me. Yeah. Staying on the topic of education, can you tell us about your views of education as a tool in the hands of women to change their lives as, as well as their children's for the better? Yes, I mean, it's, it's absolutely crucial because it's getting, okay, so it's building confidence on one hand, um, and then you become, I think, aware that your, your brain can function. Okay, so, so then you start thinking, well, I can do this. So, so there's a self-esteem um, output as well as you learn, learn new things, see the world in a new way, and start to challenge what's happening um, around you. I think that's, that's absolutely crucial. And I suppose parents um, always, always, always want their children's lives to be better than theirs. Yes. And, and very much so. I mean, all the research says that is, that is even more critical um, with working class parents. So they see that education is, um, is the way out, in a sense, for their children. Um, and we see here um, some of the unintended consequences of that pressure. So if I can just talk about that uh, for a little bit. Please do. So, so the students that are here um, at UCT that may be from a working class background or the first student within their family and extended family to come to university are under incredible pressure to not only do well, but to do well quickly and exit the system so they can go into the world of work. And because we've only recently begun to understand what kind of pressures those kids are under, we are only now putting in place, I think, a proper supportive system because of the amount of mental and emotional anguish felt by these students. I, I, I really can't um, express um, deeply enough just how disturbing it is for all of us um, to be here with people who really, they just, they want to, they want to make a difference in their families' lives. And, and imagine feeling that um, instead of feeling, wow, I'm at university, I've been left alone, I can do amazing things, independence at last. Um, it, it really is a, uh, a kind of a double-edged sword for them. And they've got an incredible weight to carry, incredible, on being able to be the first, um, being able to exit the system, uh, having the family support, but also then the expectation of supporting the family post-graduation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, let me let me digress slightly and tell you that um, uh, probably about uh, a year ago or so, I found um, some old letters my mother had had kept in her belongings, and they are um, written by um, a professor in the science faculty. Uh, on, UCT, on a UCT letterhead to my grandfather who uh, worked here just as an assistant in the lab uh, very many years ago. I mean, they're beautiful and they're from the 1930s. And I thought, 
how far we have come. Because that's my granddad who worked just down the road here and here is his granddaughter sitting in the dean's office. I think that's amazing. That's a beautiful story. Whilst we're on that that point of self-reflection, can you tell us a bit more about your personal journey on some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up that that made you who you are today? Yeah, I think, um, I suppose, don't they always revolve around people? So I'd have to say um, my high school principal, um, still alive, um, who said to me that he thought I was a very creative young lady <laughs> in the broadest sense of the word. <laughs> I was quite um, I was quite outspoken um, and did uh, many things at school while trying to, well, um, kind of uh, learn, I suppose, but uh, possibly learn in a different way. So I think um, he had an incredible uh, impact on me. Um, was a fascinating man who, um, I suppose, in common with my dad, had very high expectations. And those high expectations aren't a bad thing, I think. They they allow you to say, well, I must try harder and I must, um, I must do something else to get there. So not sort of, you know, in, in achieving academically, but in being all you could be. So that's... Um, that, that for me is a, was a key thing. Um, in terms of other people in my life, and particularly women, I'd have to say my uh, Aunt Jocelyn, she was the, um, I think she was the first woman of color to, to uh, get a BA degree. She then became a teacher and she was a principal of a primary school and she was incredible. Um, such exacting standards, truly. Um, that she rolled modeled for her staff. And um, at the time, I would say that the staff possibly consisted of three men and the rest were all women because they wanted to work with this outstanding person who was just, um, had such drive. Um, and hmm, I think the other person must definitely be my sister. She's my younger sister. And I only have one. Um, but she's the younger one and um, she's been so absolutely committed she works in the public sector um, and is an economist and is someone who has the highest level of integrity and ethics and it's it's just wonderful to see how in fact um, one can hold one's own despite anything that happens around one and uh, she's someone who makes me think there are so many really good public servants out there. Um, we don't pay enough attention to them, uh, mainly because, well, the media is occupied with the stories of doom and gloom. So those have been, like, really um, fascinating people in my life. Um, and then, just just as an aside, and I suppose quite um, quite humorously, I often credit my husband as being the person who made me into a gentle feminist because <laughs> he's um, someone who worked in the trade union movement um, for over this, um, 25 years. Wow. And um, not only was he fighting for, um, you know, workers' rights, he's very, very committed 
to women's rights. And so from the beginning of our relationship, and we've been together for a number of decades now, um, he was always gently chiding me and saying, listen to what you're saying. You're actually intentioning your position there. You need to be a bit more, um, you know, forceful around it. And, and it was interesting because it was discussion between the two of us rather than discussion between me and someone else. So I've been, yeah, I think I've, I've had so many um, gentle and perhaps not so gentle people around me who really um, showed me what what is possible. And I, I, I really can only hope that I do that for other women that I meet. And they all sound like they've got in- integrity, great values. Uh, they, they do things with a sense of, of good moral fiber in their execution. Yeah, I think that's that that's spot on. You you need to you need to live up to the values that you espouse. I think that's absolutely crucial for me. Um, don't uh, or, or let me rephrase that. You need to align your behaviour with the things that you're saying, because most of us are judged on what we do mm-hmm. rather than what we say. So that's that's how one must really live one's life. You, you have. You have a set of values that you need to live up to. And lastly, as we close the conversation today, could you please share a few words of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to pass on to young ladies that are listening to us on the continent? Yes, I'd have to say, don't wait to be discovered. Please take responsibility for your own career. No one's coming to find you. You have to stand up show all that you're capable of and grab your opportunities with both hands. Great words. Love that. Don't wait to be discovered. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Doctor. It's been lovely talking to you and hopefully uh, people who are listening to us have um, some ideas have been sparked in their minds too. Indeed, I, I hope so. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Linda Ronnie, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Commerce at the University of Cape Town.